0: Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to lead and guide as we look at your word and help us to see what you'd have us to see. And we thank you for your word and your care and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Deuteronomy 1, starting at verse 8. Remember, Deuteronomy means second law, second giving of the law. Behold I have set the land before you Go in and possess the land Which the Lord sware unto your fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob To give unto them and to their seed after them And I spake unto you at that time Saying I am not able to bear you myself alone The Lord your God has multiplied you And behold you are this day As the stars of the heaven for multitude The Lord your God of your father Make you a thousand times so many more As you are and bless you As he has promised you how can I myself alone bear your incumbents and your burden, and your strife? Take you wise men of understanding and known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you. And I and you answered me and said, the thing which you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the chief of your tribes, wise men and known, and made them heads over you, captains of thousands, captains of hun- over hundreds, captains over 50, and captains over tens and and officers among your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the causes between your brethren, and judge righteously between every man and his brother, and the stranger that is with you. You shall not respect the person in judgment, but you shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's, and the cause that is too hard for you, bring it to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all things which you should do. So we're going to stop at that paragraph. Here we are, and this book is going to be a long dissertation of everything that has happened through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. He's going to reiterate their history. He's going to re-give them their rules. So for all of us that have said for the last three and a half years over <laughs> through, the, through these last three books, we're going to be going through them basically all over again. and gonna we're gonna be looking at this so here after he's described their territory and last week we talked about how big their territory was supposed to be from the Mediterranean all the way down to the Nile River all the way back up along the Jordan River all the way up to the Euphrates is supposed to be the land of Israel the promised land and so We've, said, we've talked about that. The only time they've ever had all of the land they're supposed to have is during King David and, and King Solomon. Other than that, they've never had the land in its entirety. They will in the Millennial Kingdom. And actually, they'll have the entire world during the Millennial Kingdom. And then the New Jerusalem will come down and settle uh, in the New Heaven and New Earth. And if we remember, the New Jerusalem is only, is only 1,500. Uh, uh, 15,000, 1,500 miles in its size. Half the United States, no big deal. So, and that'll be the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and new earth. So we've got all this. And then he says, Behold, I've set the land before you go and possess it. And it's the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he says, we're finally, you're finally going to get the promised land. You're finally going to get the land that you have been waiting for and in 1948 the Jews were given their land all over again and or part of it anyway and have been battling to keep it ever since so we see the land promised to them And then it says I spoken to you at that time saying I am NOT able to bury you myself and if you remember this goes back to way back in Exodus The people would come for judgment and they would stand before Moses all day long and most of them did not get their case heard because he was the only judge for three and a half million people. And you think our courts are backlogged with all Mm -hmm. the courts we have, think about trying to get your case case heard by one judge Mm -hmm. in a nation that large. And it was actually his father-in-law who said that you're not being kind to these people. And his recommendation was to him, go find some people to be judges. And if they can't handle it, send it to you. So here he is reiterating it. He's leaving out the fact that the idea was his father-in-law's. But he's going back through and he's saying, you know, I couldn't do this. You were too many people. And I love this. He goes, verse 10, the Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day as the stars of heaven for multitude. What was the promise to... To uh, Abraham was his people were going to be as numerous as the stars and as the sand. So Moses here is saying, there's a lot of you. (laughs) There's a lot of you. And then you see this little parent. And the Lord God of your father make you a thousand times so many more than you are and bless you as he has promised you. It's in this parenthesis where he's saying, here, I've got a really good blessing for you. And if you remember, we talked about this book kind of being one long sermon. This is just Moses standing in front of the people, giving them the final instructions. They're on the edge of of the Jordan River, right outside Jericho. When he gets done, he's going up on the mountain to die. and And Joshua is taking them into the promised land. So this is where we're at. We are at the end this is this is moses's last you know you could say swan song this is his last message to the people to do what they're you know to reiterate to them what they're supposed to do and we're going to see him go over their entire history give them the law all over again and here he's saying god has blessed you and hopefully he blesses and i want to put a blessing on you that he's going to bless you you know he says a thousand times more that's quite a population he's, he's blessing them with. Three, three, hundred, three and a half million people. He's telling them, to, you know, let's get up to three and a half billion. Just a, just a little blessing. <laughs> just a little blessing. But he's glad he's not going to be their leader. He says, okay, Joshua, you can, you can, I have three and a half million. You get three and a half billion. <laughs> so, but he's not literally meeting that three and a half billion. He says, God's going to bless you. And says, how can I bear bear you and your burden and your strife? And if you remember, uh, Moses has been dealing with their complaints every time he turns around. Every time something is perceived to be wrong, they go after Moses. They cross the Red Sea. They're all happy. They've been victorious. The the Egyptians are dead. And a couple days later, what would you bring us out here? To starve us and and we're dying of thirst. This was their attitude all the way through their time. Now, there wasn't enough graves in Egypt. You brought us out here so that we could be dead and wouldn't have to be buried. And we had that complaint. There's not enough food. We, we miss our garlic and our cucumbers and our melons. And all we have is this manna. And God the gives them. Huh? The perfect food. The perfect food that's kept them healthy and kept them without... without weight problems and and not having anything wear out, but, you know, they're tired of it. And God gives them quail. And he gives them water. And over and over again, you see this problem coming up. Murmur and complain. Murmur and complain, murmur and complain. And uh, verse 13, Take you wise men of understanding and, and known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you, and you will answer... And you will answer me, the thing which you have spoken is good. And I took the chief of your wise men, your tribes, your wise men, and the known, and made them heads over you, over thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens. In other words, he set up a judicial system that started out with, you know, here's one that, you know, you just have 10 people, you make the small decisions, you have 100 people, you're going to take the bigger decisions. But the idea was you start at the lowest level and work your way up. And our founding fathers in America took this idea as they built our courts. We'll start with local courts, and they can work their way. When the problem gets too big, they get up to the Supreme Court. And that's how they set set it up, with this kind of mentality. It was good enough for Moses. It was good enough for them. And that was their their thought. And he said he charged their judges that you hear the causes between your brethren and judge righteously among you and, and his brethren and the stranger that is with you Okay, so he says, You're to judge righteously. And it doesn't matter whether they are Israelites or strangers visiting. And this was reiterated often. there is one law, one rule. They were not they did not have one set of rules for Jews and another set of rules for the aliens within the in the country. And we say, well, of course that would be true. Well, you don't realize that in their day, it was very common to have, one set of rules for your, for your people and a whole other set of rules which were usually nothing good in them for their strangers and aliens. And there's still places in this world today where there's different sets of rules whether you are a, for, you know, a foreigner or not. But in the God's economy, one rule, one set of rules that overcame everybody so we're seeing here God's way of doing things. And this is very interesting. He says in, in verse 17, And you shall not respect persons in judgment, but you shall hear the small as well as the great, and you shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's. Any cause that is too hard for you, bring it to me and I will hear it. In other words, he's saying you're not going to take bribes. If it's a poor person suing a, a rich person, you were to listen to the case and not look and see those people as different. This is the way our government to set up our, our court system in theory. It doesn't work that way anymore, but it is in theory the way our court system is supposed to work. Justice is supposed to be blind. Doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. Uh, But unfortunately, it does because you can hire a better lawyer. The the more wealthy you are, the better lawyer you can hire. And this would be a problem as far as Moses was concerned. It shouldn't take rich people getting benefit of being able able to hire good counsel. And in this case, the counsel was pretty simple. You had God's law. Everybody knew God's law. And you would stand and give your case. And there weren't any lawyers. So the person who was more eloquent would win the case, probably, unless they were really outside the law. So here he is, you're saying he's, you saying know, it's going to be even. And if it's, if it's a really hard case, escalate it. Bring it up to the next level, ultimately to him. He was the Supreme Court at that particular time. And this is going to lower his time judging, because when he was first doing this, he would be the only judge every day of the week. He would sit in judgment and hear cases. And the people would get tired standing in the sun waiting for their turn and probably not get, get heard. Okay? And if you know anything about history, this is often what happened in, in kingdoms, where the king was the one and only judge. Everybody would go to the castle. They would go to the throne room, and they would wait their turn and hope that they got to give their case to the king. And most of the time, they did not. And so Moses is setting these rules. Verse 19, And when we departed from Horeb, we went through all the great and terrible wilderness, which you saw by the way of the mountain of of the Amorites, and the Lord God commanded us as we came near to Kadesh Baraniah. And I said unto you, Ye come into the mountain of the Amorites, which the Lord has has, has given unto us. Behold, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it. And the Lord, the God of your fathers, has said unto you, Fear not, neither be discouraged. And you came near, and every one of you, and said, We will send men before us, and we shall search out the land, and bring us word again by the way that we must go up, and into what cities we shall go. and, And the same pleased me well. And I took 12 men of you, one from each tribe, and they turned and went out into the mountain and came into the valley of Escal, and they searched it out, and they took the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down unto us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land which the Lord our God doth give us. We're going to stop there because that's the good report. (laughs) So where's Horeb? Does everybody remember what Mount Horeb is? What that's another name for? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Sinai, the, the, the hill of the law. It's right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so they left Mount Sinai, and they started wandering in the desert. They went up from Sinai up to Jordan, and they sent spies. Okay, and we all remember the, the spies went in, and Moses was telling us it was their idea and that he thought it was a good idea. One thing you notice here. Verse 21, Behold, the Lord your God set the land before you. Go and possess it, as the Lord God of your free fathers has said. Go in you, fear not, neither be discouraged. Then it says, And ye came near unto me, every one of you, and said, Let us send men before us to search out the land, search us out the land and bring us word again by the way which we must go and the cities that we shall see. And the same pleased me, and I took twelve men, one from each tribe. When we studied this, do you remember what we said was the biggest problem in this? they didn't go to God. The people thought it was a good idea, Moses thought it was a good idea, and they did it. We often make decisions without going to God because they sound good. And the world's answers oftentimes sound good and we act upon them. And without con- consulting God. And this is This is something that is very hard. Sometimes it's very easy to decide whether you're gonna do something. Am I gonna commit this sin or not? When it's that easy, the answer is very obvious. We may make the wrong decision still, but the obvious answer was, no, we don't commit the sin. But let's say the answer, the question is, do I do this job or this job? And there's nothing wrong with either job. How hard is it sometimes to make a decision? What does God want me to do? A lot of people will say, Does God care what I do for a living? And I would say, Yes, He does. He has a plan. Oftentimes, we limit God, though, in our plans because usually, as humans, we go, God, do you want me to do this or do you want me to do this? And God says, uh, I'd like this third path that you're not considering. And we saw that when they came in to replace Judas. And they go, We've got Matthias and we've got the other guy that I can never remember his name of. And, you know. And they threw the lot and they ended up with Matthias and God saying well I didn't want either one of them I want I want Saul okay and we see this over and over in the scriptures God the man man coming up and saying God do I do this or this and God says well I want the third choice that you haven't picked oftentimes we walk down the wrong path first so we need to be very careful to listen to God and not limit him to our plans and our thoughts and this is something we do a lot. We see this in the, the, the children of Israel, and this is getting ready to send spies. We see it with the disciples. Which, which of these plans do we have? Uh, we see it all through the scriptures. Do I do this or do we do this? And God is saying, well, let's just listen to me and figure out what I want you to do. And I want to be careful. I want to be very sure that we try not to limit God. Oftentimes, we do everything we can to come up with our plans, and then we come up with the best plans we can think of and say, God, which are the I'm down to two plans, God. I'm down to three plans. Which one do you want me to do? They're my plans. I haven't included you in any of them, but what, what should I do? And God says, let's follow my plan. And here, the children, of the, they went in and they spied out the land. And if you remember in the book of Deuteronomy, they came back, or in Numbers, they came back with just a small cluster of grapes. They had to hold it on a spear between two guys. Yeah. Just a small cluster. They came back with fruit that was so heavy that they were laden down. Yeah. And, their, and their answer was just as he said. They told you it was a good land. Mm-hmm. That was the first thing they said. It is a good land is what they told him. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. But verse 26, Notwithstanding, you would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Behold, the Lord hates us. He has brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Yeah. They came in, they had all these products. And if you remember the, the rest of what the, what the spies said, the ten spies, it's a good land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey but it is a land that eats up its people. There's giants there, and if you remember, they said, and we appeared as grasshoppers in their eyes. In their eyes, we appeared as grasshoppers. Now, how did they determine that they looked like grasshoppers in the eyes of the people in the promised land? They made assumptions. Mm -hmm. How often do we get in trouble when we make assumptions about what somebody else is thinking. Every time, actually. Because all of a sudden we're going, well, they did this because. They, they, you know, we can't do this because this is what they think. It's amazing that when you get into, when they finally come into the land in, in the book of Joshua and they, and they meet Rahab, they're still convinced that they look like grasshoppers in the eyes of these giants. Rahab tells them that they're terrified of them. Mm-hmm. They've known what happened in Egypt. They've known what happened in, to the Amorites. They know what's happened to the Moabites. They've watched them destroy king after king, and the people are terrified of them. We see the same story in Gideon where God says, Gideon, go down to the camp and listen to what they're saying about you. And he goes back excited because they're talking about how, how they're afraid of Gideon and his small band because, they, because he has God on their side. We see Elijah and his, and his servant, and his servant comes in and go, hey, we're surrounded, they're coming to take us. The army surrounds us and God says, open the servant's eyes and let him see that those that are with us are more than them. And he opens his eyes and the army that surrounds them is surrounded by angels. We need to see things the way God sees things. He gives the position where our enemies are fearful most of the time. And what happens when somebody is afraid? They usually get very boisterous and try to scare you by being loud and aggressive. One of the things that I've learned over the years, most bullies back down when somebody stands up to them. And you don't even have to fight most of the time. You just have to stand up to them and they back down because they're being the way they are because they have a lot of fear in their life. And God is our defense anyway. We don't need to back down. We look all through scriptures, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing before Nebuchadnezzar when he says, I'm going to sound this music and you're going to bow down before this image and, and who's going to save you from me? What God can save you from me? And I love their answer. We will not be careful to answer you. We will serve our God. He can deliver us, but whether he does or doesn't, we are going to serve him. How much trust do we have in God when we face challenges? Oftentimes, we back, we back down. We're on the side of the God of the universe, the most powerful being of all, and we back down. It's an amazing thought when we do this. Does God always deliver? Could, did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know that God was going to deliver them? No, they were just going to trust God regardless. And they're going, he can? He may not, but we're still going to trust him. E- Elisha trusted God and what prophesied for God. God didn't deliver him. He was put into a log and sawn in half. Mm-hmm. Jeremiah spent most of his life in dungeons and prisons because he kept saying things that the king didn't want to hear. Uh, excuse me, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was Jere- no, Eli- no, Isaiah. Isaiah. All these, all these prophets, some of them were delivered, some of them weren't. But God was on their side doing what, was, what he wanted done. The apostles oftentimes would say, you know, we're, gonna, we're going to speak for God. You can beat us, you can put us in prison, you can crucify, you can, do, you can kill us, but we're going to stand for Jesus. Every apostle died a martyr's death except John. And in John's case, it wasn't for lack of trying. They tried to poison him, they tried to burn him, they tried to to kill him, and God just wasn't going to let him die. Whereas the other apostles all died in some form of very horrible death in most cases. Some stoned, some some stabbed run through his spear, some torn asunder by animals. Uh, it's it's that Peter was crucified upside down because he said he didn't deserve to be crucified right side up and we don't know whether that's true or not but that is what Josephus and others tell us happened to him that he was crucified upside down Uh, but God is on our side whether we know it or not we look at different missionaries Steve Elliott and his friends who landed an airplane to to minister to headhunters were killed their wives were later on able to go in and, and evangelize those, the same tribe because of the fortitude that they died with and it, and it made an impression on the, on the Indians of that headhunting tribe. Others have been rescued and delivered. Others have been killed. God does what is best for him. And we see here the children of Israel did not understand who God was and what he was ready to do for them. Moses said, let's get in this land and conquer and conquer it. He wanted to go into the promised land. He was looking forward to going into the promised land. He ends up not going into the promised land. And does anybody remember why he doesn't go into the promised land? Because he struck the rock. Because he struck the rock the second time, and he goes, "Shall I give you water?" And he was supposed to speak to the rock, and he struck the rock. And it was to show, and and it messed up the picture of Jesus Christ. The first time he was struck, they gave us water. And from that point on, he just needed to be spoken to and, and asked for water. And Moses messed up the symbol, and God said, you're not going in. So we see this, this attitude coming in. And then we look at verse uh, 27, you remembered in your tents. If you remember, we talked about that. They went into their tents and started complaining. Yeah. We're here, God God brought us out here just so he can destroy us. You know, we got this land and we just can't take this land. God hears what's spoken in private. And this is something we need to be very careful of in our lives. When we start complaining about the plan that God is putting before us, God will let us wander in the wilderness for a while. Maybe not 40 years like he did the children of Israel, but he lets us wander. And say, okay, you don't want my plan. Let's go Let's go s- kill your flesh and let your flesh get crucified. And we'll grow you a little bit and see if you're ready to enter into the promised land. The place of spiritual maturity. And so in verse 28, Whither shall you go up, my, your brethren, have discouraged our heart, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. And the cities are great and walled up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of the Amlicans there, then said I unto you, Dread not, neither be afraid of them. The Lord your God goes before you, and he shall fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw have seen how that the Lord your God bare you, as a man does bear a son in all the way that you went until you came unto this place. Yet in this thing you did not believe that the Lord your God, who, who went in the way before you to search out and pitch... Place to pitch your tents in, and fire by night, and to show you the way. And the Lord heard the voice of your words, and was wroth, and swear saying, Surely there shall not one of these men in this evil generation shall see that good land which I give to your fathers, save Caleb the son of Je- Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him will I give the land that has trodden upon, and to his children, because of the whole, because he has wholly followed. The Lord, And the Lord was angry with me for your sake, saying, You shall also shall not go up hither. But Joshua, the son of Nun, which stands before you, he shall go h- hither, encourage him, and he shall cause Israel to inherit it. So here we see Moses again going over the story. God took you out of Egypt. <laughs> they kept forgetting what a miracle it was to be removed from Egypt. And sometimes we do because we don't realize that Egypt was the empire at that time. It was the, the ruling place over all of that area. They ruled it. They were this mightiest army. They were, they were the one that you went to. They were the largest civilization of their day. And God took Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The 10 plagues which he doesn't go into here but the 10 plagues that we talked about each one of the plagues attacked in a, a one or more egyptian god and god saying i'm more powerful i am the victorious one and when they left remember they left and they spoiled egypt they were given grace in the people's eyes and they were asked They asked for gifts to take with them, and the people loaded them down with silver, gold, gems, all the stuff. And what did they use use this money for? Some of it went to the tabernacle, to build their tabernacle. Some of it went to pay toll and to buy food as as they crossed these lands that belonged to other people. Remember, the lands that they were traveling through, even though they were desert, belonged to somebody and they expected to be paid. You're not not coming along with three and a half million people drinking all of our water and not paying for it. You're not coming by and taking the food from the land that we're supposed to have and not paying for it. You're not walking on our roads without paying the toll. Mm -hmm. Okay? They took the money from Egypt and they used it to pay for things. Remember at the end of Numbers when they came to the Amorites and the Moabites their first request is let us walk we will stay on the highway we will pay for the water we will pay for any food just let us walk through your land and they said no and if you try to we're going to attack you and God delivered them into their hands over and over again alright so God is ready to deliver his people and protect them and You know, God is saying, I'm the one that carried you. I'm the one that led you to this land. Why are you rejecting? And if you remember when God said, no, you're not entering the land because I'm no longer giving to you. The first thing they did was try to go in and conquer the land on their own. Okay, they said, well, okay, God told us to go. Now we're ready. to." He said, no, we can't go. Now we're ready to go. Don't we do the same thing oftentimes with God? God says, now is the time to move forward. No, God, I'm not going. God says, okay, fine, let's go do something else. Oh, no, I want to go do this. And we go do what he told us to do and get beat up Mm -hmm. by the world. Because God said no. You you said no. I'm going to honor your no, and we're going to go teach you some lessons. We're going to see them do the same thing when it comes to crossing (laughs) the Red Sea and the Battle of Ai. They get this battle, big battle, they win in Jericho, and then they decide, well, this little city over here, we can take it. We don't even need a lot of men. (laughs) And And forget to consult God and get beat up. We need to be careful. So often we're willing to listen to God when things look hard and big. And how often do we follow our own understanding in our own ways? And try to do things our way when we think it's a small thing in all your ways depend uh, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart and in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths too often we forget the part of in all your ways acknowledge him and just say hey God this is this is real simple I can do this and then we watch God say okay you think you can do it let's watch you make a mess out of things we do it over and over and over, and all of us do it, including me. God, I, I can do this. This is, this is an easy thing. I know, I know how to make, make an event happen. I don't need to be praying for an event. I can do this. God, I can make these plans. I don't need your, I don't need your input on this. And then we watch it flop. Because God said, well, you didn't put me in it. And he doesn't bless the flesh to grow the kingdom. He doesn't bless our flesh to grow His kingdom. If His kingdom is going to grow, it has to be through Him. Mm-hmm. He's not going to say, "You can go do what you want, and I'm going to let the kingdom grow by your walking your way." And this is something important. And we've talked about this so often. We'll say, "We've tried everything else. Maybe it's time to pray." And God's saying, uh, "Maybe we should have prayed at the beginning, and you wouldn't have had all the problems that you fell that you fell into." And we all have done this. We tend to do this all the time. Go out and do things. It's a simple job I can do. It. It's a small city. I can, I can defeat this city on my own. I don't need God to take care of this problem. And God says, OK, well, let's just see what happens when you do things your way. And we see this over and over here. And it says, you didn't believe God. You went your way. He says, so I told you that everybody was going to die except for Caleb and Joshua. And i love those two characters because when they do go into the land both joshua and caleb say we want the hard land we don't want the easy stuff we we want the we want the strong especially caleb he goes i want that hill over there it's got the it's got the strongest army i want that one yeah and, he, and you think about this he's 80 something when he's saying give me that give me that hard land to get you yeah. know he's earned the right to say oh, i want the valley where nobody where there's no no cities, nothing. Else. Give me that green valley over there where there's no big enemy. And he's going, no, God, I want, I, want the, I want the hard one. I want to see you do more for me, God. Are we oftentimes not like that? God, I want you to give me more. Or are we ready to just re- retire and say, God, I just want to take it easy. I've, I've served you for a long time, and it's time to just back off and let you, you know, just, just reward me, God. I've, I've served you. Many people do that attitude. We see over and over in the scriptures, there's a lot of guys that are really famous in there that say, God, I want another challenge. Daniel, 80 years old, 85 years old, taking on the next empire to help lead them to God. Ends up thrown in the lion's den. You know, Somewhere in his, between 80 and 90 years old, and he gets thrown in the lion's den because he's following God. Yeah. And I, I love this because I was thinking about this when the question was put up on the Sunday school board, how old was Daniel? And I'm thinking about it and I'm going, I know that he's in between 80 and 90, but then I think about all the pictures I've seen in all my lifetime of Sunday school. They always show somebody in his t- either as teenagers or no older than about 30, how many times are we lying to children in the stories we tell them? sunday school classes telling the story of of noah and the ark and showing this little boat that couldn't even stay afloat with animals pouring out of all the windows and doors and teaching our kids that this little fairy tale is is what you're supposed to believe in the fairy tale of daniel being young you know we need to be very careful when we're when we're going over these stories with people so that they start understanding the Bible says so that when somebody comes and challenges what they believe they have an answer the other day we were talking about Daniel chapter 2 and where it said that in the 3rd year of Nebuchadnezzar he had this dream the previous chapter we were already in the 3rd year when 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 uh, Daniel and the and the three Hebrew boys stood before him and were were rewarded for their knowledge. And all of a sudden, we end up having going backwards. Oh, no, excuse me, it said in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. And we had to figure out, and a lot of people will use that as an excuse saying, see, the Bible's wrong. It's full of errors. And we went through all three answers for that, which we didn't do in the, for this group. You were there, right? Yesterday. No, I wasn't there. OK, Mark was here, the only one here. Uh, and we went through the three answers. And the answers are real simple. One, the book of Daniel may not be chronological, and we know that it's not, especially at the latter half. He wasn't 90 years old when God showed him all of these visions. He showed him those visions all through his lifetime. So we know the book isn't completely chronological. Now, that has some problems in it, but that could be one answer about that. Sure. The second answer that people come up with is that it is possible that Nebuchadnezzar was in a co-regency with his father, and then when, when he got to his second year as... a King by himself, that that's what they're talking about. Not a bad answer, plausible, but there's no historical record of him ever being a co-regent. And I thought the history book I read said that that's what drew him home, that one of those was probably I don't, there's different, different stories on there. Uh, and the third and best answer, as far as I'm consider, concerned, is the way that Chaldeans told, told time. In his first year of king, he would have been called his Ascension year. So year one would we call zero or Ascension. Year, his first year as king would actually be his second year. And when he was in his, second, in his second, by their time, Ascension, first, second, he was actually in his third year. Daniel and them had had their three years of training. And you've correlated the two stories without having to jump through a bunch of hoops. Either one of those three answers could be right. I tend to believe the ascension, (laughs) the ascension year believed, and that would also show the accuracy because Daniel would have been trained up as a Chaldean and reported things by their time frame. So we find how easy things happen. But we want to be careful because so often the world will say, well, look, here's an error. You know, here's an error, but you start looking it up and you start researching, and you find out well, there's no error there. there. It's it's easily explained, and so we want to be careful. The Bible is true. If we don't think the Bible is true, we go to to uh, a brother, Doctor McGee, who used to say, "Where he and the Bible disagree, the Bible's right." Okay, I grabbed hold of that from a young man. If I disagree with something that I read in the Bible, I'm wrong. I have to now go back and find out why I'm wrong. This has not been true over the years of going on with things. Uh, we think back into the 1850s. Dar- Darwin comes along and, and, and popularizes the idea of evolution. The scholars of that day go, well, science is saying this. so We've got to figure out where we can fit evolution into the Bible. And they come up with all kinds of harebrained ideas on how to make evolution fit into the Bible, thereby making the first, first three chapters totally worthless and changing the doctrines from every point thereon because they would not believe the Bible. Now we put the Bible up next to true science and say, well, see, the Bible was right all along. The geological column is perfect evidence of the Noahic flood. The, the more primitive stuff gets buried quicker with the, if, with the heavier rocks, and the, and the more advanced stuff gets buried at the top in the softer sands. Perfectly what we see. <coughs> Hard rock down below with the, the shells and the shellfish, all the way to the top where we get the sandstones, and what few mammals get swallowed up in the, in the mess. Perfect example of the Bible being true. We see it right there. We see the fact that God created everything and saying that everything is is reproduces after its kind. Exactly what we see. You don't see cats and dogs mating and coming up with a cat dog (laughs) or a dog cat, whichever way you might want to put it. They just won't mate together because they cannot mate together. And we see this all through the, the animal kingdom. Different kinds do not crossbreed. Now, can we in our scientific age make them crossbreed by taking the egg and the sperm and and making things happen? Yes, we can genetically engineer things, but that's not nature. Okay? So when you hear somebody, and I've heard that example, well, we can can crossbreed these things. I go, yeah, we can genetically engineer them, but that is not natural. It is not the way God made things. We can make things happen that shouldn't happen, but that's not nature. And then we see DNA. Do you realize how amazing the discoveries and the mapping of DNA is? You cannot have information without some intelligent being behind the, behind the information. And I, and I love this whole, this whole thing, because I'll write down a word that, that is an English word, but it's also a German word. And I'll ask somebody, what does this word mean? And when I ask an English you know, group, they'll go, "Well, you know, this means whatever." You know, I'm going. Well, it does in English, but it doesn't. But that's not what I wrote. I wrote a German word, <laughs> and it means, you know. And I actually use T A G. Okay, T A G. For an English person, that's a tag. You put it in your shirt. Tells you who made it. Put your name or something on it. But in German, it means day, Tag. Okay, so it depends on who is saying what those symbols mean and so what we're finding about information information has been the big death blow for evolution because you have information somebody had to create the information and has to give a meaning for that information information just doesn't pop up on its own and this is important for us to understand the truth in the Bible when the Bible speaks it is correct no matter what topic it speaks on mm-hmm. it's not a history book but where it talks about history it's correct it's not a science book but when it talks about science it's correct it you know we see the picture of behemoth and Job. yeah you know, I love the people people try to say about behemoth you know they try to say it's an elephant you know it, it's described as a long-necked animal to start with so that doesn't fit an elephant mm-hmm. It talks about a tail that resembles a cedar tree. And if you've ever seen the tail of an of a elephant, it's about <laughs> six, seven inches long. It looks like a tiny whip with a little bush at the very end of it. Now, how you might think that that looks like a cedar tree, I don't know. So then they go, well, it's a hippopotamus. And again, the hi- that's even worse because a hippopotamus tail is just a little tiny thing. It, you don't even know it's a tail. You know, the only animal that you can look at out there that you could even begin to think of a tree attached to it would be some form of brontosaurus or, or, or triceratops or something with a long-tailed dinosaur. And it would fit because he says they've got legs like tree trunks. Which, yes, an elephant's legs are pretty big, but I still wouldn't describe most elephants as a tree trunk. You know, They're a pretty good size, six or seven inches, but they're not You know, that wouldn't be your first thought. (laughs) So we see the Bible talks about dinosaurs. Science is finding dinosaurs with soft tissue in them, with blood cells in them. Totally impossible if they died out 60 million years ago, like they want us to believe, to have bones that aren't fossilized with soft tissue in them and still have their DNA intact. It just proved to us that the Bible is right and man is wrong. And again, we need to grab hold of this attitude. If anything looks wrong in the Bible, it's our understanding of it that's wrong. We've talked about David. For centuries, they said David never existed. He's a myth on the lines of King Arthur. They found no geological, no anthropological record of him. And then in the 40s and 50s, they found all kinds of evidence that David was a king and existed and ruled, and Solomon after him. So they're going, oh, well, I guess these people are real. How? Huh? about 1960 before they found evidence that Pilate existed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pilate is a relatively new person. And when they found out that he existed, they also found his reports talking about Jesus and all the... And this crazy uh, itinerant uh, rabbi who was causing all kinds of problems and been crucified and and all of this so but the point on all of this is if it's in here it's true okay it is true if it's in here and it's not in here because it's true it is true regardless of whether it's in here or not and it is true and we always want to accept the Bible is True, It will be proved out eventually. There is going to be a time when we see the economics crash around us. Red selling for a bag of gold, which has happened in the past, by the way, in various countries. Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany in in in, uh, South America, a couple of places had their economy crash and their, their currency crash. Anytime you end up with hyperinflation, you will see this situation happen. We're on the verge of it right now, but not just in any one country, the whole world. The next crash we have will affect the whole world, and we will see just what the Bible tells us. We will see one world currency. We will see a one world leader show up and say, I'm the, I'm the Savior, I'm the Messiah. We're going to see all of it. Well, we may not. We, we should be raptured by then, but, but it's going to happen. It is going to happen and it's amazing that we see how it is all out there i've talked a lot about the two witnesses it used to be that nobody believed that the two witnesses story was real and then they go well how can everybody in the world watch these two witnesses die and resurrect you know, well in the 80s and 90s we started beginning to see how it could be mm-hmm. we got we got news reports within 24 hours we could see the pictures now we see the pictures as they're happening and we now could picture, the way we understand cable and satellite TV, we could picture a channel, two witnesses, 24-7, you know, 365 days a year for, three, for the three and a half years that they're there. You know, the year and a half that they're there. You know, we can picture a television station devoted just to them. And then people celebrating when they die. And having the parties that it talks about. And the whole world watching them resurrect sending each other gifts because the 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 troublemakers are dead you know, that's what the Bible talks about sending gifts yeah but we see all of what the Bible has what we've looked at in the Bible and said well how can that happen it's just no way that that can happen and now we look at it and say oh man don't we see how it can happen how we could be on one world currency how we could have that you couldn't buy or sell without a mark whatever that mark might be whether it's a chip, electronic chip or a, or a symbol, we understand easily how we can transfer money without ever touching cash. Because most of us, even in our day, don't touch cash. We use our debit cards. You know. Even if we're not using credit, we use our debit cards. And we don't use cash very often. There's, there are people I know that have not touched cash, some of them probably ever for some of the younger people, yeah. and they never get a check because their, their check is automatically deposited in the bank, they automatically pay their, their mortgage to the bank through an automatic withdrawal, they pay their utilities, they go to the grocery store and buy their groceries with their debit card and they buy their gas with their debit card they go out to eat with their debit card and have never touched cash most of us sitting in this room if, you, if we'd have been told that you know, there's going to come a day when people won't touch cash when we were growing up <laughs> You know, we'd have gone, yeah, right. You know, how are you going to buy anything without cash? You know, you know, and, and we're not writing checks. <laughs> you know, you know. But the Bible is true. And we want to be able to understand any time that we think that there is anything in there that we have trouble with, it's not God's problem. When we find a doctrine that we just cannot really grapple with, and I think of like the Trinity. The Trinity is something that no matter how much you study it, how hard you try to compre- comprehend it, you cannot understand the Trinity, which is also one of those things that proves to me that God wrote the book. Because it is so bizarre that nobody in their right mind would have written anything about this idea of three people that are one, and, and but they're all separate. You, know, you just wouldn't have come up with that kind of a concept. But God says, this is who I am. And we see all of this stuff. He knows the future, and yet he gives us a free will. How do we comprehend that? We can't. The idea when this was written that there was a God who was outside of time, who did not dwell in time, and yet it was there. We We kind of understand the principle, but we don't understand how it can be. Because we theorize about time travel and being outside of time, but we can't operate outside of time. You know, at least there we can theorize. God's word. He told the, he told the people that he hung the planets in space. You know, before there was even this idea that they were hanging there. You know, the world had this picture of the world sitting on top of something, usually flat. But we also realized that educated people already knew that the world was round. It was not a brand new thing when Columbus went around the world. It was a well-known fact to the educated that it was round. He knew that they could go around the world. He just didn't know there was a continent in between Europe and Asia. But he knew the world was round, because that's what the scientists understood through their mathematics. Anybody who ever handled a sexton knew that the world was round because of the curvature and all of that that they had to calculate to be able to sail. You know, it was the educated knew. All of God's word, how often has it been mistreated? How often has it been mishandled? This is what I believe, and this is what I'm going to, to teach and do because this is what I believe instead of holding what it says. And this is why even when we did the book of Revelation, I said the very first rule we're following is where it can be taken literal, it is literal. Unless it's very obvious that it is making some kind of picture or a symbol. Now does that mean the symbols can't be applied to the literal? Not necessarily. When we talked about the temple, we talked a lot about the symbolism that God put in there. The silver for redemption, the gold for deity, the brass for judgment the purple for royalty, the blue for heaven, the white for for purity, the red for the blood. You know, we went through all of those different pictures because they were there, God put them there. Not because they had to be there for us to understand that they built a tabernacle. Because Paul talked about the entrance into the tabernacle and how you entered in through the blood and God's righteousness into perfection. He knew the symbols he understood and we when the symbols work we look at them we talk some oftentimes about the numbers that are behind things and the numbers don't always mean something but they often do the 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 number seven perfection completion number eight new beginnings uh three god's numbers the number six as is told to us man's number incomplete without god <laughs> okay we see all these numbers that are out there, and, and sometimes it makes sense to say these are what the numbers represent. We look at these things, and does every number represent a symbol behind it? No. It gets funny when you start looking at these people who start saying that every number has a symbol behind it, and they start taking the, the Hebrew, and there's a number assigned to each each number, and they start saying, here's this number, and they try to figure it out. And we add this one to this word, and you know they can come up with some really bizarre, <laughs> things out there. And some of it is interesting. But I'm not going to say that God's that complicated. God is simple. The truths of God are so simple that a child can understand them, so complex that we will spend our lifetime studying them and never fully understand them. This is the power of his word. Simple enough for the simple the most simple-minded of adult or child to understand, and yet complex enough to challenge the greatest thinkers in its depth. So we want to be able to see God at work and what he's done for us. And let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We ask that you go with us as we go out. We ask that you guide and lead us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.